You probably know this, but health practitioners are increasingly reminding people that if you tend to be a negative thinker, you're always thinking pessimistically, you're down in the dumps, you're hypercritical, that that can actually affect your physicality. So if you're a negative thinker, that can lead to an increase in chronic stress. You just can't shake it off. When you go through life stressed out and kind of wound up and uptight, and that can actually send you to your grave earlier than if you learn to find contentment or peace uh, in your circumstances. And so this is a reminder to us that attitudes and outlooks, the perspectives we have on life can affect us physically. And the same is true when it comes to the truth of God's word. Our attitude towards the truth of God's word will affect not just our physical destiny, but our eternal destiny. So if we tend to be dismissive of what God has said, or rebellious towards what God has said, or we just plug up our ears and we're not paying attention, we don't want to listen, we don't want to hear what God has said, that can lead us unnecessarily to eternal spiritual death as we reject the free offer of eternal life that God has offered us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be studying this morning from one of the prophets of the Old Testament. His name was the prophet Amos. There's several very short prophetic books near the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at several portions from the last few chapters of Amos. And Amos really is a great example of a man that had the right posture towards sin, the right outlook, the right perspective on sin. When it comes to sin, some people are dismissive. They're like, I don't want to think about it, or I don't care about it. God warns them. They're like, who cares what God says? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be the, the captain of my own ship, the master of my own fate. And it leads to a disastrous result. God has spoken truth to us, and we need to listen to it. And sometimes, admittedly, before there is hope, there must be conviction. Before there's hope, we have to be hurt a little bit, kind of shaken up. The cage needs to be rattled so that we pay close attention. In the last three chapters of Amos, there's essentially four things. I'll just review them real quick here that we see portrayed through this prophetic figure. The first is his reaction to the devastating effects of sin. He has a reaction to it, and it's heartfelt. Secondly, he stubbornly refuses to compromise in his preaching. He's so committed to truth. Even when people push back and say, that's unpopular, you shouldn't say that. Because he knows that truth transforms people if it's received. He just continues to lean into the calling that God had placed on him. Third, he's a unique person because he readily accepts God's justice and judgment. Sometimes when we think about God, we're like, well, God, I know we've screwed up and done some bad things, but you know, where are you when my life is rough? Where are you in the midst of suffering? Why are you so heavy-handed? Why don't you chill out, God? And these are accusations we fling God's way, but Amos doesn't do that. He upholds God's justice 
And he accepts the fact that the God of the universe that created us is competent and capable and rightfully equipped to judge us. And fourth, even after all of that, he still has hope that God will restore unto himself a remnant of people that love him and want to obey him. So it ends on a high note. I want to ask you this question. What is your attitude towards sin? What is your posture towards sin? What is your perspective on sin? And as we study this passages, uh, these passages of the Bible, just kind of think about whether the, the postures, the attitudes, the, the outlooks that Amos has, just ask whether or not they're present in your own life. Let me introduce you to four healthy postures or outlooks towards sin. The first one flows from the teachings of chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. And there, I learn that I should be grieved by sin's consequences. Instead of poo-pooing sin, overlooking it, dismissing it, not being concerned about it. If I'm going to love God and be the person that God wants me to be, I should be grieved by sin's consequences. So if you're just joining us in the first several chapters of Amos, Amos is sent to Israel to prophesy against a people that had it pretty good. Life was comfortable. They were living during a period of economic and military stability. Things were great. It was a high point in their culture and in their society. Things were running smoothly. But because things were so smooth, they'd sort of eh, relegated God to a footnote. And they had become self-reliant. They had learned to love their idols They were overlooking the destitute. And God challenges them, and he warns them in all of these areas. So now, as we enter into chapter 7, God is about to pour out his judgment. And listen to what God's word says. This is what the Lord God showed me. Lord God means sovereign God. Not that you really have to qualify God with sovereign, because to be God, you have to be sovereign. But there's a stress in the text that this is the Lord God. This is the sovereign God. This is your owner. This is my owner. This is our creator. This is what the sovereign God or the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land. So what's going on here is God is basically revealing to Amos a vision of what's about to happen. And God was going to punish his people by sending in locusts, like big old grasshoppers, to wipe out their harvest. So the punishment would be no food, starvation. So this is the vision that Amos receives. And Amos reacts to it. And he says... Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? Jacob is a reference for Israel. He is so small. So he cries out on behalf of the people. Look at this. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So this is fascinating because the people that God wanted to pour judgment upon didn't repent yet. But a godly, humble man who was living among them repented on their behalf or cried out to God, have mercy on them. And because of the prayers of one individual for an entire nation, 
God stepped back and he set down his judgment without relinquishing his justice and he gave them a little more time. And then it happens again. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. So not locusts this time, but fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. You know what a plumb line is? It's a string with essentially a weight at the end, usually a tapered weight with a point. And when a carpenter or a construction worker is erecting a wall from a great height, they will often use a plumb line. So the string, if I took one right now, a string, and I had a weight on the end, and I dangled it over the edge of the stage, after it stopped moving, it would be absolutely plumb from top to bottom. So God here is essentially saying, I've measured my people. I want to see how upright. I want to see how straight they are. And the implication is they were way off base. They had failed God. They had failed to obey him. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. If you're a student of scripture, all these different synonyms, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and then a reference to Jeroboam the king are all different names for this one nation, this people of God that had thumbed their noses at God and pushed him aside. What's amazing here is we have two things that seem to contradict being held in perfect tension. God is absolutely sovereign and just, and he will not give us an inch of room to sin without noticing. And yet at the same time, God often exercises great patience and great delay and gives us far more time than we deserve to exercise repentance because someone out there is crying out to God on our behalf. Lord, have mercy on them. They think they're so big, but they are so small. And that might seem contradictory to you that God can be both sovereign and also that he can have his mind changed by the prayers of his people. You'll have to wrestle with that by yourself because this is how the scriptures present God. He is a God that is both sovereign over all things, but he's also intimately and intricately invested in the prayers of his people. And he often exercises far more patience and far more delay than perhaps we're even aware. Think about the times you've sinned and gotten away with it. You think, well, maybe God didn't notice. I mean, he's got a big world to manage. But in actual fact, it might be because someone out there is praying for you. Lord, have mercy on them. They are so small. What is sin, by the way? Sin essentially is thinking we're so big. Sin is an attempt to usurp God's authority. If God is creator, master, Lord, ruler, sin is, no, I'm my own creator, I'm my own master, I'm my own Lord, 
I'm my own ruler. I will do what I want. I will say what I want. I will feel what I want. I will go where I want. That's sin. Sin is essentially usurping God's authority. And in judgment, God comes and he kind of shakes us up because he reminds us how feeble and fragile and small we actually are. We're very, very, very small. Let me use a spatial illustration. It's hard to wrap your mind around how small we are compared to God. But I'll use a a, a spatial illustration just to kind of help carry us in that direction. When we turned the lights on in the room today, from our perspective, the lights instantly came on. Instantly. It went from darkness to light. It appears that way, but it's not actually true. Light is traveling. Light travels through space. But it's so fast that we can't pick up on it. The speed of light, scientists tell us, check this out. Light travels at a speed of 299,792 kilometers per second. It's like, boo. Calculate that one. You think, wow, that's how fast light travels? How big is the universe? How long would it take for light to travel from one side of the universe to the other? Well, let's just talk about our little galaxy. We live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And scientists don't actually know how many galaxies there are in the universe, but a conservative estimate is 100 billion. Some think think there's up to 400 billion galaxies in the universe. We'll just talk about ours. If light travels at 299,792 kilometers per second, and it starts at one side of our galaxy and completes its trip to the other side of our galaxy, it will take 200,000 years to make that trip. Something's going on in your head, right? It can't compute, can't compute, smoke's coming out your ears. That's how fast light's traveling across our galaxy. And there's potentially a hundred or two or three or four hundred billion more. It's like, whoa, we are very, very small. We need to come up with a better word than small to indicate how small we are. But here we are down here telling God what to do, telling God we won't listen, accusing God of wrongdoing as if we understand his whole plan and purpose for things whenever we sin. We're making ourselves far too big. And in judgment, God makes us small again. Because God, while he is patient, at the end of the day, he will not tolerate any ongoing attempt to have someone else sit on his throne. He is God. So when you think about sin, maybe this will help you as you think about sin. Some of the things that help us to avoid sin is to have a proper outlook on what it actually is. It's kind of like you're eating a meal, right? And someone says, hey, you're eating that meal. Is it delicious? Oh, it's delicious. Mmm, yum. Hey, did you know that that's going to kill you? Really? Why? It's full of sodium. It's full full of monosodium glutamate. It's full of chemicals. It's full of cholesterol. It's like every spoon, you're knocking minutes off your life. You're like, you know what? This doesn't taste so good anymore. That's what sin's like. It tastes great. Spooning her in. Having a little more. Man, the last bite was good. I'm going to go for another one. It's killing you. 
So what's a proper perspective on sin? You need to know that sin is pathetic. Sin is a false advertiser. It promises satisfaction. It never delivers. Sin takes life rather than gives it. It ruins relationships. It confuses the mind. It lopsides our emotions so we're not emotionally stable. It's childish. And in the end, we never win. God will have the final word. When the godly cry out, Lord, please have mercy on them, which we should be doing if our eyes have been enlightened to truth on the lost. Maybe God will relent for a little bit longer. Again, without diminishing his sovereignty, you know what it does? It it elevates God's relationality. God is relational in his nature, and he's incredibly merciful. Thank God for that. So we start off with seeing in Amos an attitude towards sin. He grieves it. He understands how childish and ridiculous and small-minded it is. And then as he commits himself to speaking truth, the second thing you need to know is that you shouldn't be intimidated by threats. Truth transforms. There was a lot of truth that doesn't really transform much. If you take a two and you add another two to it, that equals four. That's true. The sky is blue. That's true. Fish swim in water. That's true. And there may be implications of all those truisms, but they're not, they don't transform souls. God's word is true, but it also transforms. It introduces us to God and enlightens our mind and hearts to who we truly are. And yet there are many that will say to you, don't tell me the truth. Stop telling me that. I don't want to hear it. And they will threaten you and they will push back. This is what happened to the prophet. Look at chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. He gets in trouble for preaching warnings against sin. And surprise, surprise, his primary antagonist, the guy that challenges him, is a religious leader. His name's Amaziah. And ironically, he's a priest in a town called Bethel, which means house of God. But he's very godless. Verse 10 says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from the land. So he's delivering warnings from God. And Amaziah said to Amos, go seer, meaning prophet, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and dresser of sycamore figs. In other words, do you think I'm in it for the money, bud? Did you really think that's why I'm delivering this message to you? Because Amaziah says, go, go make your bread. Go make your living down, in, down in, in Judah. Maybe they'll listen to you down there. He's like, I ain't in this for the money. I'm not looking for work. I'm not looking for a job. 
And by the way, it's because he wasn't in it for the job that he couldn't be bent. He couldn't be bought. He couldn't be manipulated. He wouldn't buckle to the threats that were being delivered to him. Then he quotes God's word. But the Lord took me from following the flock. So he corrects his true intentions. The Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So look at the contrast. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So there's only two voices that are going to speak into your life. God's or everyone else. There's a contrast here. Thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up by a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Do you have any idea of the consequences that are going to come when you toss God? You toss the life giver. What do you have left? You have death. You have destruction. You don't have protection. You don't have promise anymore. You don't have hope. You just have you. Think of Amos's circumstances. It doesn't say he has an entourage of bodyguards and politicians. And he's just wandering into kind of a quasi-foreign country. I mean, he was, a, he was from Judah, so he's wandering into Israel. There'd been a breach between the two sections of Israel for quite a while. He's putting his life on the line. He's addressing the king and the king's head priest. But he doesn't close his mouth. and He doesn't go silent because he knows this. As soon as you go silent, persecution wins. As soon as you say, okay, I don't want to go to jail I don't want the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal breathing down my neck. I don't want to be charged with a hate crime. I don't want to be called a bigot, a misogynist, a homophobe, a hater. So I'm just going to pull the old live and let live worldview out of the hat and go home. I have an acquaintance on Twitter who is a um, trained counselor. He, he helps people who are survivors of sexual abuse, people that have been violated. And he's very concerned that sexual abusers, perverts, often try to infiltrate special interest groups because it gives them a safe avenue and venue to commit sinful acts against other people, evil acts against other people, because a lot of these special interest groups are increasingly being protected above all other groups in Canada and around the world. Groups especially that specialize in issues of aberrant sexual identity and so forth and so on. So he posts articles, and recently Twitter shut him down. Because one group, furries, people that like to dress up as animals, and many of them are engaged in sexual deviancy, said, well, that's offensive. 
So they reported him. Now he's being investigated and his account shut down. Think about this. We live in a culture where some guy that wants to dress up as a cat is given greater protection and free speech compared to a professional that wants to help people who are being sexually violated. Because someone out there was offended. I'm offended all the time. Where's my protection? This is the world we live in, and it's increasingly going in that direction. The threats, the labels, I mean, they're coming fast and furious. You are A, you are this, you are that. And unfortunately, many people of faith are buckling to that. And I'll tell you, when your livelihood's on the line, your job, job as a teacher, your job as a government official, your job as a civil servant, your job as a pastor, your job as a health practitioner, you can easily be bought or manipulated if you're not careful. You can be career-minded. Amos is like, this, that's not what I'm about. I'm about truth. We as God's people must preach the truth. We must preach it hard and clearly. And many won't like it. I mean, the, the chances of everyone leaving here today agreeing with this are slim to none. Slim to none. But we must still preach the truth, not because we are the ultimate judges. We're not. We sit under the same standards that everyone else sits under, not because we hate people. We love people enough to tell them the truth. You're shoveling in the forkfuls of food, but it's poisonous, man. You're knocking minutes, days, months off your life. Like, put the fork down. It's dangerous. You might think it tastes good, but it's poisoning you. If we don't speak the truth, by the way, as often obviously was the case in Israel, God will use unexpected people, even a foreigner from the south, to come up and tell the truth to a priest that should have known better. How many Christians stay silent when they have an opportunity to speak the truth because they're afraid of labels or threats or the social stigmatization that's often attached to being, frankly, normal? How many parents, even in their own relationships with their kids, are so committed to the relationship, they're so committed to the relationship that they refuse to speak the truth when their child is confused or involved in something dangerous and at the end lose the child or lose the relationship anyway. Why do we speak truth? Just to be right? No. We speak truth because our creator knows what's best for us. And creatures should never, ever, ever under any circumstances apologize to other creatures for what our creator has said because our creator knows best. And he loves us and he loves himself. And he wants to protect both himself from being robbed of mercy and us of relinquishing or never receiving what he offers to us. If you don't feel qualified or if you feel inadequate, well, if you don't know the truth, you are. But we have the Great Commission and we have the Word of God. And our job is not to make it up, but we can just preach the Word of God. 
and let God do what he chooses to do. In all of this, another point that we need to consider is that I should champion God's just prerogative. I should not apologize for God or accuse God, as many do. You know, in our humanness, how many of us have not asked basic questions like, God, why do you allow suffering? God, why did you let that person die? God, why did you permit this? Why, why did this happen? We ask those questions, and they're legitimate questions. They're not innately bad questions if they're properly motivated. And the Bible has some things for us to consider in answer to those questions. But the problem is, is too often we ask those in an accusatory way, but we're never really assessing how offensive we are to God. We don't consider our own conduct and our own contributions to the injustices in our world. Hey, sometimes we're not generous. Sometimes we're stingy. Sometimes we're liars. We're self-centered. We're prideful. We're destructive with our words. We're absent with our presence. We're contributing to the brokenness of our world. Let's be honest. We're accusing God. In actual fact, a proper outlook on sin is to champion God's just prerogative. If you go to the grocery store and you buy bananas, they always come green. Get a big old bunch of bananas, they're green. If you eat them right away, you know how like the husk is kind of like hard to pull off, it sort of breaks, and they don't taste very good. They're not very sweet, they're kind of bland. But if you leave them too long, they go brown, and they're like hyper sweet, kind of gross. They get all squishy inside. And this is just like, there's something about this. You want them kind of like right in the middle, right? Right yellow. But that lasts just, what, a few days, it seems. Susie brings them home, they're green, like two days later, they're yellow, and you got to eat them quicker, they're, they're brown, they're done. Because as food ripens, it moves increasingly towards rottenness. It doesn't stay ripe. It goes from ripe to rotten. And here in this text, God draws upon this analogy to help us to understand something about his perspective of Israel. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold a basket of summer fruit, meaning ripe fruit. It's edible. It's a good time to eat it. They didn't have refrigeration. It's summer fruit. It's ripe fruit. But it's moving towards rottenness, and God sees that. I think the nation even sort of felt like it was like the summer of their existence. Everything's great. The, the weather's moderate. You know, maybe it's vacation time. God's prospering them. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. God here is prophesying about the future of a people that fakes their worship and that is not committed to issues of justice. They're in the temple. There's sound coming out. But God is going to take those songs of worship, which were being faked because they were worshiping idols, and he's going to turn them into cries, to wailings. 
God just says, silent, I've had enough. What's he exposing here? As he did in the earlier chapters, he's exposing fake worship. How many of us have come to church and perhaps been guilty of faking it in worship? Not really meaning what we're saying, not really receiving what we're hearing, not really being true to ourselves and to God and to others. God's like, I'm going to throw up. Tolerated it long enough, time's come, done with that. How many of us have lived our lives with a desire to accumulate and get comfortable and we've overlooked issues of justice? Maybe even people in our own families who are struggling emotionally or financially. That's repulsive to God because this God who blesses expects us to take that which he's blessed us with and blessed bless others in return. All, verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 10, he also talks about all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. When people say, well, that's not going to happen to us. That, ha- that happens to other nations. That's not going to happen to our church. We've got it going on. It's not going to happen to our country. We're pretty secure over here in the West. God's like, yeah, wait and see. Unrepentance will be judged, and we mustn't accuse or apologize to others because God is prophesying this kind of wrongdoing. But in all of this, as we come, become, come face-to-face with our own sinfulness, there's also a word of hope, in that, and that is this, that I should be hopeful about restoration. You see, God is a God that even in his judgment is always preparing a remnant. And it begs the question, are you in the remnant? Are you part of the remnant? When everything else is going crazy and nutty and when godlessness is increasing and God's being, people are attempting to pull him off his throne and evil is being called good and good is being called evil and righteousness is being called unrighteousness and unrighteousness is being called righteousness, are you going to be part of the remnant? Or are you going to be part of the majority? In chapter 9, Verses 11 to 15, God says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David. That is a reference to a famous king that ruled Israel. I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And then in verse 15, I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of a land that I have given to them, says the Lord And then he uses this personal term, your God. If he is your God, this promise is actually for you. God promises that in the midst of dispensing judgment, that he speaks a word of truth to the people of God. If you obey, if you surrender, if you say, uncle, give up, that he will offer restoration to you. One of the blessings of being a Christian is not being able to go around and say, hey, look how awesome we are. But it's how awesome is our God, who even in our brokenness offers us the opportunity to make it right. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this verse is often used in evangelism. And I want to share my faith with people, so I'll use this as an evangelistic verse. It's actually not an evangelistic verse. 
It's a verse for the people of God. And it says there that if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. See, we need that because even the redeemed often dabble in unrighteousness. I do. I wish I was further ahead. Anybody here like me? It's like, why am I such an idiot still? Why don't I have that together? Why? I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. I, I, I know better. I just preached this. Anybody with me or are you going to leave me alone up here? But the great thing about God is that the Christian life is founded on grace. And it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And as you've heard this message today from the book of Amos, maybe in your own heart, you're like, man, this this kind of stings a little bit because I realize I haven't stood for truth. Or I'm not really grieved by sin. I've kind of gotten used to it. And maybe you're an idol worshiper. Maybe your job, your car, your family, kids, your money is frankly, gets way more of your attention than God does. And you know it. And you're like, man, I got to move away from that. Move away from it. And you move away from it very simply by confessing it to the Lord. You agree together with God, this is wrong. And I need your grace to be able to overcome. And God, by his grace, offers forgiveness. And then he resources us to make the necessary correctives. What are our resources as Christians? How about this? We got a Bible. It's true, it's convictional, it's accurate, it's historically accurate. When you open it, it speaks directly to the human condition. Like, I see myself all over its pages. We have a Holy Spirit. Unless we quench him, say, you know, shut up, sit down, we don't want to hear from you. He convicts us, he rebukes us, he encourages us, he equips us. He impresses God's love upon us. You know, you're in worship. You're singing a song. You're reading a psalm about God's love. And you're like, you, it's not just, wow, this is good tune. This is good tune. It's just like, this is God speaking truth to my life. I need to be reminded of that. The Holy Spirit does that. And then we have one another. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. You're not on an island all by yourself. I need you. And you need me. And we need each other because together we are the body of Christ. And together with our individual gifts, stories, and backgrounds, we speak truth into one another and hold each other accountable so that we might reflect in a greater way the beauty of Jesus Christ to our world. Less of me, more of him. This is a beautiful gift that we have. And if you're part of the remnant, and that's your story, you'll be rescued. You'll be among them. These are the attitudes that we must don, that we must hold on to, that will protect us and that will bless us. So I want to encourage you to adopt them as your own, to the glory of God and to your own benefit.